Welcome to this edition of Digging Deeper. This is one of the podcasts that Perimeter Church puts out alongside another podcast that we call Thinking Biblically. But the Digging Deeper podcast is just a time for us to come alongside of what's being taught on Sunday mornings and do just what the title says. Dig a little deeper, try to answer some questions and address some topics that we wouldn't be able to do in our sermons just because of lack of time. I'm Jeff Norris, Senior Pastor at Perimeter Church, your host for this episode. Uh, Alongside me are Caleb Click and Eric Ryan, both of which you have heard on previous episodes. Caleb serves on our teaching team, as well as uh, a number of other things in the church. And Eric is on our executive leadership team, overseeing spiritual formation and shepherding. So these guys are going to join me today to try to answer some questions about heaven. And uh, let me just state off the top that um, a lot of our discussion today is going to be just that. It's going to be a discussion. We're going to share different viewpoints. There's going to be some things that we probably talk about that we don't even fully all see the same exact way, because these are questions that the Bible speaks to, but not with great clarity. But they, uh, they're addressing questions that we commonly have. Several of you have already sent us emails and commented on social media saying, hey, what about this? What about that? Uh, as it pertains to the afterlife and heaven and hell and so forth. And so we'll try to address some of those questions today. We'll give clarity as much as we possibly can, and we'll anchor where we can anchor, and then we'll make it clear, hopefully, when we're just saying, hey, this is an opinion, this is a thought, could be right, could be wrong. God doesn't really give us a whole lot to work with here in the scriptures. And so um, we don't want to speculate necessarily uh, unhealthily, but we do want to have a good discussion. So sound fair? Good with you guys? So we'll start with uh, we'll start with uh, this question that I've already been asked several times, both in person and in email, uh, which is simply, what about people, what about our loved ones, our, our friends and our family, people that have believed upon Christ that we know, based on the truth of Scripture, are in heaven right now. They're in the presence of the Lord. Um, they're experiencing all the glory that comes with that and the joy that comes with being in the presence of the Lord. But here's the question, can they or do they see what's going on with us? Um, You know, are they aware of what's happening on earth and are they, uh, yeah, watching our lives, so to speak? And um, I think I said in week one of the sermon series, I just alluded briefly to this by saying, you know, it's not uncommon that you'll be watching a sporting event or something like that and somebody will have a great performance and... It'll be on the heels of a loved one in their life passing away, and they'll say, well, I know he was watching me, or I know she was watching me, and that kind of thing. Do we think that's true? Do we believe that? And and where do we point to in Scripture to even have a beginning of of why we would believe yay or nay on that? So um, I'll, I'll pose it. I'll throw it out there. I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear from one of you guys first. I mean, I think with this question, we have to be super careful about being dogmatic about it. There's a lot, like, I think when Scripture speaks about life in what we call in theological terms the intermediate state, and that's the life between your death now and then the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, I forgot who uses this language, but somebody refers to it as, as the whisper of God. He does not give us much information. And so we have to be careful about speculating too much, other than saying we know we're at home with the Lord. 
uh, and there seems to be uh, there's a, a conscious awareness of that. Uh, I, I think there seems to be. This is where I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I am not. I can't say I know this for 100% fact, but Scripture does seem to indicate that there is some awareness for those who are in heaven of life here on earth. And you know, you could point to a couple of different passages that that would seem to hint at this. One of those, a, a big one, would be Revelation six, where you're given this picture of the heavenly throne room and you, the, the martyred saints, those who've been killed for their faith in Christ. They're uh, they're calling out to the throne to where the, where God sits and saying, "How long? Like, how much longer are we going to be here?" And they're aware of the fact that justice, judgment, has not yet been done for this, the the wrongs that they've suffered. Uh, and the fact that they're praying that indicates that there's an awareness of something happening on Earth that that the things that are wrong have not yet been made right. Um, doesn't mean, now you got to be very careful what you do with that, there's an awareness of the injustice. It doesn't say like they know that their you know, grandchildren are playing a soccer game and kicked a goal. It doesn't say anything like that. What it says is they're aware of the fact that justice has not yet finally been done, and there's a sanctified discontent as they wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, another place might be Hebrews 12, which this one gives you a By little way, bit By the way, I like that language, a sanctified discontent. That's Yes, yeah. That's good. Yeah. You're... you're you are in the presence of God, and yet there's still an already and a not yet, mm-hmm. something you're still longing for. Yeah. And uh, the, the other place you might look to is like in Hebrews 12, where it talks about the great cloud of witnesses that are in the, the image there is of a race that we are running as God's people who are still alive, and the, the great cloud of witnesses being the, the body of Christ across the ages. They are watching us run this race. Now, again, what that means and what that looks like, it doesn't give you specifics. So you don't want to take that too far, but again, it does indicate there's an awareness, at least, of what's going on here on Earth. Yeah, and the context of that is important too, right? It's coming right off of Hebrews 11, where the author of Hebrews has just recounted, you know, the faith of those who've gone before us and who didn't get, uh, didn't receive on Earth what what was promised. Um, and so, um, Caleb, are you okay? <laughs> Caleb's what, what drinking you can't water. See is I'm trying to drink from this. <laughs> squirt like bi- bicycle squirt bottle and I thought it was making noise so I took the lid off to try to drink from it and then I just poured water in the front of my shirt uh, so I'm a podcast fail right now it's, uh, if this were videoed if you were watching this right now that would have been incredibly entertaining uh, if yeah. you're not interested in what we're saying you would have been interested in, in Caleb's inability to drink water that's it happens um, a lot but uh, a complaint from my wife quite often <laughs> but yeah so that the context of that's really important where you've got all these people who have just been recounted. And then he says, so therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, mm-hmm. let us run the race with, with endurance, right? And so there is that picture there. And again, I agree with you. You don't want to try to take this too far and say dogmatically or definitively, yes, we can say that every person who's gone before us in the faith is watching us right now. But there is a sense that there is, I would be willing to say personally, my opinion keyword opinion is that, yeah, I think at some level there is an awareness of what is happening on earth by the, excuse me, by those who are, who are in heaven. Now, I, I don't think that means that they're just, uh, eagerly, you know, just engaged with all that we're doing. I mean, my, they're pretty preoccupied with the glory of Jesus and with what that means in, in his presence. But, uh, and nor do I think, you know, just to speak to some other traditions that are a little bit 
in different directions, you know, that they're hearing our prayers. I don't think that's not the case at all. And yeah. that they're going to Jesus on our behalf or, you know, that would be way off base in my opinion. Um, but I think it's sufficient to say that it's a certain level. I think they can, they are aware yeah. to what extent we don't know. Jeff, I think you, you do a good job there of speaking to a spectrum, right? There's, there's this spectrum and on one side, I think sometimes we get me centered, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden now heaven is actually about me still. It's people in heaven surrounded by the presence of God, watching everything I'm doing because they love me because they're a relative, right? you know, and it's trying to remember uh, that balance. And yet on the other spectrum, I've also heard um, just kind of weird uh, following the track of, of reason, right? So, well, if, if God's outside of time, you know, I've heard the argument that you kind of die and immediately we're getting into the new heavens and new earth, or at least it feels like that because of God being outside of time. But we don't really see that evidence in Scripture. I would echo what you guys have said about about Hebrews twelve uh, and and Revelation six. And so there's there seems to almost be this spectrum where, kind of in the middle, in this kind of healthy place, is hey, there's a a sanctified awareness right of everything that's going on. There's a sanctified awareness even of God's plan and God's glory and how He's kind of manifesting that uh, here on earth. But then when you kind of swing way past that, you start to get into these spaces, right, where all of a sudden now my, my grandparents care far more about the little things I'm accomplishing here on earth than they necessarily care about God's glory and God's unfolding plan and, and kind of the riches of that. Yeah. One of the things you're bringing up there that is, you know, another something that ties into this is that there is some who believe in in what we, what has sometimes been termed the the sleep state, you know, or the... Uh, that because God is outside of space and time, when you die, the only thing you know next is the full culmination of all things when Jesus is returned. Um, we would not agree with that. Biblically speaking, that there's you, that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, however, you, you certainly are in this, in this reality that is very different than earth. And so again, a lot of mystery there, a lot of things that we would just have to say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that exactly looks like and how that plays out. But well, and there's a couple of things I think to say. There's one is that the idea of soul sleep, which is what that's called, right. comes from the fact that like Paul at different times talks about the saints who have gone to sleep, but that language is not referring to the state we'll be in, but rather it's showing that death for a Christian is like sleep in the sense that it's something from which you awake. It's yeah, an image. It's not final. Yeah. It's not intended to be a, a doctrinal statement as much as a an evocative metaphor that gives you a sense of like what what death becomes like. Um, and and I think two two real quick things is one is the one thing I think we know about those who are in the intermediate state is that they have a profound concern for the outworking of God's redemptive plan. That's what they're aware of. That's what the witnesses are aware of. That's what the saints in Revelation 6 are aware of. Uh, That doesn't mean that they are specifically focused on individual people. Now, we just don't, we have no idea. Right. So we have to be real careful there. The third, and this is one is like, I, I actually do think there's prayer in heaven. I don't think they intercede for us though. Right. So like Revelation 6, if, if prayer is conversation, the saints are crying to God saying, mm-hmm. how long? That's prayer. Yep. But it's not, and somehow it's going to be different. I don't know what it's that's going to look like or what not, that is, yeah, but that's, something's happening. That's yeah. a really good point. It's not intercessory prayer. For us. For yeah. us, right. <laughs> that we but, see there, yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that's really great insight there. You know, I think one of the things that, what is sanctification on earth? Um, 
sanctification on earth is God aligning us more and more, right, to his heart, making us more like him, creating us more in his image as he's renewing us day by day. And even in the second week of this series, talked about that, about the sanctifying work of God, the inner reality of renewal. Well, what is it, if we talk about this, sancti- this sanctified state in this, in the heaven as it exists right now, in heaven as it is this, this second already, not yet, well, what would that mean? Well, it would mean that our hearts are fully aligned with God's, not partially like they are now, but fully, right? Where there is no sin, there is no distraction, there is nothing that's making us me-centered at that point. And so if that's true, then what are we most concerned about in heaven? We're most concerned about, to your point, Caleb, the fullness of God's redemptive plans coming to fruition. So if we're, if we're caring about things on earth, it's primarily with that. It's primarily with the redemptive work of God and the seeing that come to fruition for his glory. Yeah, another way to say that, what you said about sanctification is also my will aligns with the right. will of God, right? So even you see those martyrs, it's kind of almost in it. You think about Revelation's context written to a persecuted church, for them to see the martyrs cry out in alignment with the will of God right. for redemption mm-hmm. and uh, for restoration of the injustice that they received, all of a sudden now the saints can read that, right? And they can go, man, God's heart is for us who are experiencing this persecution. Right. Um, and it's just a, it's a beautiful picture. But again, because of that, you're not going to see the same always the same wills in them that you maybe saw here on earth. You know, like grandma was really pumped about going to my sporting events when she was here, yeah. but I can't just assume, right, that that's how she's kind of functioning right. now in heaven. Right, yeah, that's good. All right, I'm going to shift us to another question that's a, that's a really important question and that I think um, for, the, for the reader of the Old Testament, for the Christian who reads the Old Testament, and if they're reading critically and discerningly and, and – asking good questions as they read, they're probably asking this question. What about Sheol? What is Sheol? I mean, when you read through the Old Testament, it comes up a lot. That word comes up a lot. You know, the place of the dead, Sheol. Oh, Lord, please don't allow my my, um, soul to descend into Sheol, you know, so on and so forth. Let's talk about that. What do we know about Sheol? What is it? Where do... uh, where did Old Testament believers, those who believed in the promise of God by faith in the coming Messiah, the promise one, where did they go? What did afterlife look like for them versus what we know now is true for those who die in Christ uh, or, or conversely who die apart from Christ? Um, yeah. Initial thoughts on Sheol. What do you got? <laughs> it's not a, you know, such, a, not, such an easy topic. Not a complex question at all. Right, right. I mean, I think one of the big things to understand when you start thinking about the, the the afterlife in terms of scripture is you have to remember that there's a progressive progressive unfolding of God's revelation. And so the understanding that we have now of the afterlife is not the same as that that they would have had in the Old Testament. And that in the same way that scripture itself is slowly unfolding God's covenant plan of redemption, uh, there are elements that are only slowly being revealed. They're always true, but they're not always visible 
or or known to the people of God at that time. And so Sheol in the Old Testament, you kind of see this development. It's the place of the dead. You see all over the scripture, Genesis 37, 34, Genesis 42, 38, 1 Samuel 2, 6, Job 17, 13. The Psalms use it all the time. Uh, and almost every time it's a reference to the place of the dead, that when you die and your physical body is gone, you as a human being who's created as a soul and a body, that is what makes up you as a person. It is a holistic union. Uh, you exist in a sort of shade state uh, where you are. Uh, it, it is not a desirable thing. Like David doesn't seem to want to go down into Sheol. Uh, he's his his you know he times he even asks God like how can I praise you from there? Uh, it is something less than life. Um, and there's a development over time that there are two distinct places in Sheol. So Sheol is simply the place of the dead, so we could clarify that. But there's one place that is the place of the unrighteous, and then there is another place in Sheol that is the place of the righteous. Uh, the place of the unrighteous, sometimes uh, that w- would be the place where those who would go who ha- have not walked by faith in Yahweh and his revelation or that we now see in Jesus— the place for the righteous is often called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Um, and it is a place where you go and you are to a degree that is progressively unfolding with God. Um, so, for instance, if you turn to the, the New Testament in Luke 23, you've got Jesus saying to the, the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in paradise. Well, what's he talking about? He's saying, well... He's speaking to that conception of the place of the righteous in the uh, the Old Testament view of Sheol, the place of the dead. Uh, we, we have another window into it in Luke 16, uh, where uh, uh, Jesus gives this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you know, Lazarus is the poor man, the rich man is living the high life, they both die. The poor man goes into the bosom of Abraham or paradise, the rich man goes into the place of the unrighteous where he's suffering. Uh, the there seems to be in the parable. Now you gotta be careful because parables are are pictures, and so they're not intended. You can't you want to don't want to draw too much doctrinal content from it. Um, but it does seem to indicate that again there is a place for the unrighteous and a place for the righteous. One of those is a place of blessing. The other is a place of suffering. Uh, and let me interject with that. Ahead. Keep don't lose your train of thought. Yeah. But it's important to note with that neither one of those realities are what we would call heaven or hell today. Yeah, not yet, no. Not yet, right? Like, to your point of unfolding realities, yeah. right? So so you've got this place of paradise or Abraham's bosom in Sheol, and then you have this place of, of for the unrighteous mm-hmm. uh, in Sheol that is a place of torment at some level. Yeah. But not, again, I just want to make sure our, our listeners are hearing clearly, not what we would say are heaven and hell necessarily, not as we understand. Not as it we now. understand yeah. it, right? So keep going. Sorry, I just well, I hope I didn't mess you and, up your train of thought. And there's a sense again. This is a developing sense, but in the Old Testament, that for the righteous, there's a hope for resurrection from the dead, because as a human, you're created. You know, again, you're created f- before the fall to have a body. Uh, the the idea of resurrection from the dead is kind of built into the redemptive storyline that culminates in the New Testament. 
And so the, the hope is that one day you're going to be rescued from Sheol, that God is going to bring you out of it into a restored new heavens and new earth. And that's even there in the Old Testament. I mean, if you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, the new heavens and the new earth are all over the place. Yep. It's very clear. And the idea is that God's people will once again dwell there, and it won't be in a shade state, but in an embodied one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's kind of the Old Testament picture. Yeah. And, and you think about that, too, from... It begins to make sense about our concept of our understanding of heaven now is, to your point again, much clearer than the Old Testament saints mm-hmm. had, right? Uh, one way to one metaphor that we use often is to say they look through a glass that was, you know, frosted, right? You know, fogged up. We now look through a glass that is much clearer, and um, and then even even now, right? One day when we're with God we'll see even clearer than we do now, obviously, uh, as we behold his face and his glory. Um, but, you know, it makes sense that when you when you start looking at some of these Old Testament, um, you know, giants of the faith, if you want to call them that, you look at David, you look at, uh, you look at some of the, the authors of the Psalms, like Asaph in Psalm 73, they did not have an expectation that they would be in heaven. They, 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 had, they had an expectation they'd be in Sheol, Right. And, and they, like you said earlier, it was not a place that they desired to go. It was not like this, you know, oh man, I can't wait to go and be there. Um, I think about Asaph in, in Psalm 73, where he says, whom have I in heaven, but you, we often translate that through a new Testament lens that he's thinking, man, that day that I get to heaven and I'll be with God. He's actually only thinking of that in the context of that is the dwelling place of God. He's not thinking about of that's my future dwelling place. Um, and so it is important to understand the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, and and what's happening in the understanding of the afterlife in both. And this is important, ultimately how Jesus is the one who redeems that fully to where we do now understand that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven, yeah, right? As opposed to in this place of Sheol, like it used to be. Right. So um can be very confusing. Yeah, we right? gotta like I think yeah. we just gotta be super clear that this is an extremely contested and difficult issue. Yeah. That we kind of have to go. We have we can only say so much before scripture just stops talking. Right. And where scripture stops talking, we can speculate, but sometimes that speculation is not healthy. Yeah. Um and so we wanna we wanna be careful that we don't go further than what scripture actually tells us. So with that, yeah, I mean, of course, we don't. Uh, we want to be careful with what we say, and and we don't want to speculate too much. But I think a question that people have that we've heard is is okay. What what did you and you referenced it earlier, Caleb? What what did Jesus mean? What was he talking about when he did turn to the thief on the cross and say, "Today you'll be with me in paradise"? What are what are thoughts there? So I'm taking too much time, so I'm going to nerd out and I'm going to be quiet for a while. Uh, this is <laughs> what, something... We want you to nerd out. This That's is good. something I, I'm really passionate about and really interested in because it, it plays into what we say in the Apostles' Creed when we say that Jesus descended to Hades. Uh, sometimes you'll see it written as descended to hell or descended to the dead. Um, and this is a, a really important thing to wrap our heads around. And so uh, before I answer the Luke 23 question, let me kind of backtrack it for a second. So when you think about uh, the creed, specifically the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, what they're doing is they are answering heresies, not with negations, but with positive statements. 
They're essentially saying, uh, this is what you must believe to be a Christian. Like, so for instance, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Well, if you're a Gnostic who believes that heaven and earth, that earth itself is bad, uh, guess what? You can't confess that, which puts you outside of the Christian faith. Uh, the, the clause, Jesus descends to Hades, was intended as a way of denying that certain heretical statements were true. And so there was a heresy that was floating around in the early church called Ap- uh, Apollinarianism, which is this idea that Jesus, when you think about Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, right, the Word became flesh, the way the Apollinarians would express that was Jesus had a human body, but he didn't have a human mind or soul. He had a divine one. So he was a human body, like a sort of flesh suit with a divine mind. So if you think about like men in black with the alien that like they can you know pull the face open and is like running around controlling a human body, that's basically <laughs> how they would picture Jesus, right? Like really crass. First perimeter podcast with a men in black reference. And yeah, probably the last. <laughs> um, because that's clearly where my mind first went. Yeah, yeah. And, and for some of you who are of a certain younger generation, you may go, what's men in black? Well, right. it was yeah. this really cool movie back in the 90s that I enjoyed. Uh, anyways, but th- this idea is totally... <laughs> Sorry, we were totally off topic here. Uh, but the idea for Apollinarians, the problem with this was, is they were doing this because they, they couldn't conceive an idea. How does the divine nature die, right? So the, the confession of Jesus descending to the dead was intended to say Apollinarianism is outside of Christian orthodoxy. Because what we confess as believers is that Jesus uh, as, as, is one person, but who is fully human and fully divine, both at the same time, and yet they're united into a single person, so that whatever the one experiences, the other does too. So that when Jesus dies, it isn't just his human body dying, but it's the person of Jesus that dies. So when Jesus descends to the dead, what it's saying is he died a human death. So when you die, and this is the Old Testament view, your body would die, but your soul would descend to the place of the dead because that's what happens. What's the place of the dead where the righteous go? It's paradise. What is Jesus saying to the thief on the cross? Today, I will be with you in paradise. Guess what? When you die, I, Jesus, am going to descend to the place of the dead, the place where the righteous dwell, and I will be there with you. And that's where Jesus was for the the three days he's in the tomb. Uh, He's dying a human death but it's the victory that's taking place there. He's declaring his victory and the people, the Old Testament saints, this is where I start geeking out, the Old Testament saints who had believed by faith in something they never saw, they had the promise of a Messiah, but not the thing itself. They had the hope of the resurrection from the dead, but not the thing itself. When Jesus descends to the place of the dead, suddenly they're seen face to face what they only knew before by faith. And, and that is when paradise becomes something new because he takes them to, when he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he takes them to heaven with them. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've got an idea, uh, and this will be the last thing I say, and then I'll shut up for a little while, uh, uh, that some people interpret that clause of the creed. Uh, there was, it began to be thought of that it was referring to Jesus going into hell and then suffering in hell. Um, and because people wanted to push against that reading of that clause, which was not the original meaning of the, the patristic father, at least as far as I understand it, uh, it was uh, they began to teach, starting with Calvin, that the descent to the dead referred to Jesus suffering the agonies of hell uh, on the cross, which is technically true. He did suffer the agonies of hell on the cross, but that's not what's being referred to by the descent to the dead, even though that's a true statement. Because notice the 
Apostles' Creed, it's chronological. So he dies, he's buried, and he's raised. It implies a chronology. If you say he suffered the agonies of hell after he died, the chronology is wrong. So it's obviously not the meaning of the original creed. But two, um, it, it misses what it's actually talking about, which is Jesus uh, descending and dying a real human death and thus being a true substitutionary atonement for our sin because he died as a human, uh, which is what Apollinarianism uh, denies. And so that's that's the idea there. So, Eric, before you share any thoughts, I'm going to give our listeners freedom to uh, rewind, <laughs> to go back and listen again to I everything s- Caleb slow just... Slow down the speed. Yeah, the there podcast. you go. Listen to everything. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> listen to everything Caleb just said, because, man, that was really, really good and very insightful, uh, helping us understand a very misunderstood clause that we say often in church, you may be in a tradition. I mean, hopefully many of you, most of you are listening because you're members at Perimeter and you you say the Apostles' Creed with us when we do that from time to time is our, is our affirmation of faith when we're gathered corporately. Others of you may be listening to this. You're a part of another church that does the same. Uh, or maybe perhaps you're a part of a denominational tradition where you don't recite the Apostles' Creed very often, but at least you're familiar with it. And you've always wondered, what does that mean, Right. Uh, and so what Caleb's just walked through there is really important. And um, and so if you didn't catch it all, go back, listen again. And, and I want to be clear, there are a lot of different views around that clause. Um, and if you want a really interesting book that I can hardly recommend, even if I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's really, really good, is He Descended to the Dead by Matthew Emerson. Uh, it's a, a really interesting study of, of that particular part of the Apostles' Creed. I feel like we're in a day and time right now where we have to make sure we say two or three times, if I That's recommend a book, a book yes. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I agree with everything yes, in I'm it. I'm not endorsing every jot and tittle, but it is really well right. done, and yeah. uh, it is, uh, I, I think, commendable. And, and yeah. just for clarity, Caleb, you are disagreeing with Calvin on For this. one of the few times in my life, I am, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's I, we're I getting think, bold here. That's right. Yeah. We're getting bold here at the Perimeter Podcast. Yeah. I love me some Calvin, so please <laughs> don't take that too far. Eric, any, yeah. any thoughts you would add? I, I just think, I mean, one, it, it is going to bring up a question I want to ask. I'm just, I'm curious you guys, your thoughts, but that picture, right, of Old Testament saints waiting for something that their faith has been the only mm. sight they've been able to see. And then Christ, after that brutal death, showing up victoriously in Hades mm. uh, is just—it's just a powerful image that I don't think often we sit on. So obviously, in the New Covenant, at the turn of Christ, we see right Paul start saying things like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We see a little bit more of a, a revealing of what God is doing. What about hell versus Sheol? When does? If if hell is a place created for the angels and the demons, when does when does hell kick in for those who do not believe? Mm. That's good. Good question. So I think there's again, I'm talking again. Here we go. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that uh, was his log break. Guys. I, I, I say I'm gonna be quiet and then I start talking. This is again, this is the, the well, here's the thing. Here's the reality. And and I think our listeners who know you know this. Uh, you've read way more than Eric and I on these topics. So it's okay for you to be the one sharing the yeah, most. What's happening and, behind the scenes is we ask a question, Jeff and I look at each other and then both look to Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> and Caleb starts to feel this weight of like, I oh, guess I've right. got to do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the things to think of is in the same way that like for us, there's an already and not yet in what we experience as heaven. There is an already and not yet in what we think of as hell. 
So for those who are going to the place of the unrighteous, uh, is it, I mean, at least based on the, the parable we have in Luke 16, it does not seem to be a place of joy. It yeah. seems to be a place of suffering and a place you do not want to be. Um, there's a reason the rich man is asking that uh, Lazarus go back, be raised from the dead and go back into the world and tell his family about what's happening because he doesn't want them to have to share in that. Um, but that is not the final resting place of the unrighteous dead. Uh, you don't see that until you get into the book of Revelation when the final judgment happens. Um, it, it is There is a, a second death that takes place where those whose names are not in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire that Satan and his angels are also thrown into. And so if you go to Revelation 20, uh, there is a part where it talks about uh, the defeat of Satan. And it says, you know, the in verse 10, the, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, later on, at the end of the same chapter, it refers to those whose names are not in the book of life as being thrown into that same lake of fire. Uh, that's the final judgment. Now, we need to be super careful about saying more than Scripture does here. We, we don't fully comprehend any more than we fully comprehend what heaven is going to be like. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have to go, man, There's it speaks to it. We know it is a place of torment, a place of God's judgment. Uh, it is a place from which there is no uh, second chance or escape. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a final thing. Um, but the language of Scripture is, again, it's, you think, especially in the book of Revelation, it's a uh, what's called apocalyptic literature. It's using images to convey reality. And so you need to be careful about too uh, literally interpreting the images, uh, other than to say it is a judgment that will burn away what is evil and will be uh, a place you would not want to be I think it's important. Uh, apart from the Lord. That's really good. And I think it's important, too, to even note that uh, you know Jesus spoke pretty yes. clearly yeah. about this place called hell. And, and it, the phrase he uses the most often when talking about that place is weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, that, and which gives us, gives us this clearly, obviously gives us this feeling of man. That sounds pretty horrible. I don't, I don't want to go there. And he very clearly teaches along with the rest of the new Testament writers uh, that, you know, the, the distinguishing factor, and do you go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, or do you go to the place that is in the presence of the Lord? Um, is faith in Jesus? It's it's belief in Him, you know. And this is where we come back to the simplicity, yet the profound nature of the good news of Jesus, captured for us in John three sixteen. Right? For God so loved the world, gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have have eternal life. Um. And and the converse of eternal life with Jesus is eternal life away from Him, and He calls that weeping and gnashing of teeth. So yeah, I think it's important in these conversations to distinguish what are the non-negotiables of the faith. Right mm-hmm. around hell, a non-negotiable is that it is a place, mm-hmm. right? right? That it is eternal. It's a reality. That yeah. it is yeah, it is tormenting in its nature. Um, and so I think a lot of times people will will start to almost make up details because they're so afraid of kind of sliding into universalism or annihilationalism, which is just right. This idea that we just, if you don't believe you just cease to exist. Um, they're so afraid of that, that they'll actually make up more details than what scripture gives us. 
but it's really important, right, to remember that this is a place that is originally intended for the devil and his angels, but that we see clearly in Revelation, it also becomes a place where those who don't believe, whose names are not in the book of life, um, go to be. Yeah. And so I think anytime, what is heaven, hell, anytime we're, we're dealing with some of these places where I love the way Caleb worded it the other day, God just stops talking. Yeah. <laughs> right. Anytime it's talking about those, we've just got to be very clear kind of in our mind and in our heart. What are, what are the clear non-negotiables here when it comes to what Scripture does? And I think we should say, too, is like, it can be really easy to theoretically talk about hell. And and I don't and I know for some of us listening to this, we hear that it's just like it's just it's painful. We think of loved ones mm, that we for sure. have lost. We think of friends that we have been praying for and sharing the gospel with who seem indifferent to, to Jesus. Um, children. And, and there's children. children yeah. There's there's a sadness there. And I think it's important to remember that the reason it's in Scripture is not because God delights in this. It's because God wants to warn us. He He is. It is. It is. It's like me telling my child, "I don't want you to cross the street because there's a car coming, and I don't want you to get flattened by it." And and it, it's an act of love. It's him. He's telling you this so that it would not be where you would go, because he wants you to be with him. Uh, and and that's that's I think an important piece to to keep in mind here. Um, when well, God and even seeing the heart of God in Scripture, yeah. that His desire is that no one would perish, that all would come to repentance, right? And mm-hmm. and even understanding God's heart in this, but also His character, right? Um, that God is a God of justice, that He is a God of holiness, that um, that sin warrants punishment. Right, and that's that's him being consistent with his character. Um, let me ask you guys this, and we'll we'll let this kind of be the last question we address today. Um, what about some of these books that have come out recently? There seems to have been there for a few years. It was just like, man, there was another one every six months, seemingly, of somebody having visited heaven and and then writing a book about it. Um, what do we what do we make of that? What how do we, yeah. What do we do with those books? Yeah, I think the last time a book came out on that in that that vein, I think I was in college, and so I was still in kind of the pick argument phase of my life. <laughs> and so I remember just thinking through and going, looking at all the detail of what the kids saw and all this different stuff, and going, "Well, see that that's why that can't be true." But I, I think it's a higher level question than what we typically make of it, right? We want to look at what they saw and see how it doesn't line up or does line up. Um, but really, it's a it's a question of the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of the revelation of God. And you can you can almost even more ask, like, why, why would God reveal more to one person, whether it's a kid or an adult, uh, than he would to the rest of the body of the believers uh, to encourage the saints? And where we see visions in Scripture— they're there to edify the entire body and they, they actually become scripture and we can, we can trust those. And so I think we've got to be really, really careful uh, when books like that come out. Uh, one, you always got to be careful when money's involved uh, mm. to some extent. And Jeff, you even kind of alluded to a lot of those books that came out in that season have now those people have come back and recanted or said, Hey, that wasn't true. Um, but it really does. It becomes a question of the sufficiency of scripture and it, it almost starts to play with just our fleshly desire to kind of know the details of the quote goodness of heaven 
And a lot of times those details are completely separated from the person of Christ. Mm. Um, and it's mm. really just my desire to know more and more of, man, what's, what's heaven going to be like for me right? Um, in that sense? And it, it feeds that. Whereas for whatever reason, and I think this is a good question to ask is, well, if this was really necessary to edify the body, what's written in this book, why did God not put it in his word? Right. And, um, and oftentimes you kind of end up, when you ask those questions, you kind of end up in a place of, of kind of understanding there. But it really does become, rather than just, and a lot of times when those controversies come out, right, we pick apart those books detail by detail but there's a bigger picture question there about the sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly the heart of the issue is, is what are you putting your faith in? Like if your faith depends upon someone's book about an afterlife experience, you've put it on really tenuous ground. When God is calling you to put your faith on his revelation in his word and through Jesus Christ, and, you know, you think about Paul in, in 2 Corinthians when he's, he talks about how he knows a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven, whether he's in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And it's pretty clear from the context that Paul's talking about himself because he's talking to these guys who were claiming to be superior apostles because of their visions. <laughs> and Paul's basically going like, you want to talk about visions, I've had more. Now, that does open up the possibility. Could someone have a glimpse of the afterlife? I mean, maybe based on that, you could say there's a maybe. But Paul apparently did not see it as something that was edifying to the body of Christ to know. Mm. It, it, in fact, he he goes seems to be downplaying its significance and even says there's things there that I can't even tell you. Um, it, it seems to have been a vision God gave him to personally encourage him, not so much for the rest of the body of Christ. And so I get really nervous when people start basing their faith on someone claiming a vision when it kind of sounds like the super apostles issue that Paul's warning against. Um so I, I would I just I would put a lot of caution. Um, your faith is in Christ as revealed through the Word, and anything outside of that, it, 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 if it falls and it causes your faith to waver, that's dangerous. And I think it goes back to, again to the sufficiency of uh, Scripture thing. Like you you want to be testing the spirits to see if they're if they're of God. Uh, test them on what you know of heaven, but don't base your idea of heaven based on what somebody's saying. And, and again, that. you think about that's really good. You think about the context of um, of that passage, what comes off the heels of him saying, hey, I went to the third heaven and I saw this, you know, but I'm not really even going to tell you about it, is God gives him the thorn in the flesh, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, God knowing the human heart, yep. what's the temptation for Paul going to be? It's going to be to... Um, you know, perhaps you know, with Paul to get all elated about mm-hmm. what he saw, yep, and and be tempted to, which is how you know it's Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and to to be, you know, maybe self righteous about it, whatever it may be. Yeah. And God gives him the thorn in the flesh to humble him mm-hmm. and to say, "Hey, you saw something that nobody else has seen, but oh, by the way, during the remaining time on earth, you're going to have this thorn in the flesh to keep you humble." Yeah. Um, and so with that, you know, some of these books. I think it's important, Eric, you brought this up, keep coming back to, if you've been with us in this series so far on Sunday mornings, I've been hitting this really hard. What's the what's the point of heaven? Who is the focal point of heaven? What is heaven ultimately about? It's about the glory and the supremacy of Christ and us finding our, our deepest longings and, and desires met in him. In these books, um, we have to be careful with them because so much of the way that they're written written is not so much about us 
longing for him, but longing for that place. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with Jesus. Um, and so I said this in the sermon uh, in week two of the series. I'll just reiterate it again. Um, heaven isn't so much about a place where our longings are satisfied, um, but it's primarily about a person in whom all of our longings are satisfied. And, and even another way to say that perhaps is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is not so much about getting us to heaven. It's about getting us to God. And uh, the eternal place of that is heaven and, and ultimately back on earth. And so there is this, you know, uh, and we'll talk more about this in a coming episode, but there is this reality of that heaven on earth, right? God is going to renew and redeem all things, not just us, not just our souls, not just this spiritual disembodied reality, uh, which is the current state of heaven in the interme- intermediate state. Um, but there is going to be this day when he returns and all things are, are made new. Uh, all of the physical world is renewed and made, made new, uh, as well as we're reunited with our resurrected bodies. We're in this physical reality as real as you and I are sitting at this table right now. And it's real. It's physical, tangible reality. That'll be the new heavens and the new earth. And so we'll do an episode um, in a couple weeks from now. I hope you'll come back and join us where that's going to be the topic of conversation. We're going to talk exclusively about the new heavens and the new earth. I'm, I'm going to share one more thought um, as kind of a leaving piece for our listeners today. Uh, but any final thoughts from you guys? I would just echo what you're saying, Jeff. I think that's been a key part of this series, right, is that the gospel gets us to God, not a place. And you would, if it was about the place, you would see far more about it in scripture, mm-hmm. right? You would see David writing Psalms over and over again, longing for the heart of heaven. And yet in Psalm 27, it says, uh, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, right? It's not to get to heaven. It's not to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. It's that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And if that's what he's hoping for here, how much more we get to experience that in heaven. Um, and you just see that echoed over and over again, the the presence of the Lord, beholding the glory mm-hmm. of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord. All of these are the things that the saints long for uh, in the Old and New Testaments. And so if your heart is, if you find kind of in your heart that you just think constantly about, I just want to get to heaven, I want to get to heaven, um, to maybe realign that a little bit in this series and really start thinking about what is it in Christ? What is it in the Lord that is so beautiful and so powerful that it would overcome kind of all other goodness and good desires of, of heaven in that way? It's good. Yeah, it makes me think there's a, Herman Boving's got a line where he says, uh, contemplation, understanding, and enjoyment of God make up the essence of our future blessedness. That that's that's the heart uh, of what we experience in heaven, and I think we we got to say though, is yes, it is uh, that contemplation, that understanding, that enjoyment. That's the heart, the essence of our future blessedness. But it's an embodied contemplation, understanding, and enjoyment. Like God designed us in and in declared it good that we would be embodied creatures, an integrated body and spirit, and to be one without the other is not to be human. And the way you enjoy God, it's actually in the midst of those physical embodied things. 
Uh, so it's in his world, surrounded by his people and in his presence. And that there's a, a spiritual side to that and an embodied side to that, and both of those are integrated together perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's that's the hope of the believer. And it's so hard for us to, to picture that because there's such disjunction between those two things right now, right? Like, as we live in the flesh, we're constantly at war between the spirit and the flesh. We're uh, in this place where those things are not integrated is the way they, they should be. And so it's almost hard for us to fathom that, and yet somehow that's what's going to be. Yeah, and, and thinking again about what has God's purpose been from the very beginning? We have often thought of that the purpose is to get us to heaven, right? To, to, to get us out of, to escape from this, from earth, from the physical world, and get us into that spiritual, heavenly reality. Um, so as a setup for where we're going to head in the next episode, is let me read this quote. Uh, this is from Michael Goheen and from Craig Bartholomew, Bartholomew um, from the book, The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. This is what they say. They say, salvation is not an escape from creational life into spiritual existence. It is the restoration of God's rule over all of creation and all of human life. Neither is salvation merely the restoration of a personal relationship with God, important as that is. Salvation goes much further. It is the restoration of the whole life of humankind and ultimately of the non-human creation as well. This is the scope of biblical salvation. It is also the scope of our own calling to be witnesses of that salvation, to continue the mission of Jesus who prayed for the coming of God's kingdom. And so that's where we'll head. We'll we'll talk about what, Caleb, you're mentioning there and even just what we're thinking about as we think about where when we say the hope of heaven, what is it that we're ultimately hoping in? It's in that full consummation of the kingdom of God as it is on earth. And that the purpose of God is not so much to get us to heaven, but for God to dwell with us on earth. That was what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what he'll do again with his people redeemed for all of eternity. So here's a question to leave with. Uh, How are you how are you living out the four things that we're, that we're teaching on in this series? How is this becoming more of a reality for you? How are you longing for heaven on a daily basis? How is your hope set on heaven, specifically on being in the presence of Jesus? What are you doing in terms of understanding the reality of heaven? And where might have some of your misconceptions been in the past? And ultimately, How are you resting in the assurance of heaven? Um, That last one you won't have heard yet. That's what uh, the following Sunday after this episode comes out, I'll preach on the assurance of heaven. After that, after those four weeks, we'll have one more episode on the new heavens and the new earth. So look forward to joining us there. Uh, Check us out online on our app. You can see the show notes and all that comes alongside of these episodes. Hopefully this has been a blessing to you today. And we look forward to being with you again here soon. Until then, God bless and thanks for joining us. 